morning, JR. Good morning, Doug. Welcome to season two. Woohoo! We made season it. Season two. This is like a big deal. It is a big deal. I mean, I feel like in most life, the terrible twos start, but for <laughs> us, it's the awesome twos or somewhere that, that, you know, some kind of synonym for awesome that me, that starts with a T like tremendous, tremendous twos. I like that. I like that. The <laughs> tremendous twos. So yeah. Um, you know, with uh, the summer done and we're back into the swing and we can almost smell the leaves yes. changing in the yes. air. Yeah. I know fall is really important for you. What are you looking oh, forward to? Man, I love the fall. Favorite time of year. Uh, like hoodies and sweatshirts are coming out soon and football and like just, I mean, it's great having our kids home for the summer, but also the rhythms of school again. Amen. And it just, I mean, I, it isn't just like, yeah, go back to school kids. I think our family, we just do well on rhythms, not ruts, but rhythms are so helpful. And I feel like they're anchoring and healthy for my soul. And I feel like, uh, whether, whether you have kids in school or not, I think the church operates by the school calendar anyway, right? Energy's big. People are back in September. That's when small groups often launch or new ministries in churches launch. It's because we're all on the school calendar. And uh, whether we have kids or not, just the majority of life that happens within a community happens through a school calendar. So I'm excited about that. And I just think, you know, momentum and energy, good rest over the summer, but hitting the ground running. So I'm super excited. Not real excited about pumpkin spice latte. I, I was like totally on <laughs> I was that bandwagon like 10 years you. ago and yeah. then just get totally burned out. Now I just, the fake pumpkin. Yeah. I just can't, I can't even do it anymore, but I love pumpkin, everything else. Right. Yeah. Everything totally. Else. Pumpkin it's, coffee, cinnamon yes, in my coffee. Yes. Pumpkin butter, everything. Yeah, yeah but, we uh, we we have a good friend Caleb with Nutty Novelties. Oh my gosh, uh, he's going to be so excited that we just mentioned him on this oh. huge, hugely successful podcast. But he has a uh, pumpkin butter that's just incredible. I I'm convinced it's it's laced with crack cocaine. It has to be. It's I, probably it's, illegal. It's amazing. Yeah. it's absolutely amazing. Give yeah. the website. Yeah. Give a little shout out. Yeah. It's uh hold on a second. I'll pull it up here. I believe it's nuttynovelties.com. Yeah, nuttynovelties.com. Caleb Moister. Uh, Caleb Mangum, I should say. <laughs> he, he is actually a uh a frequent listener, uh, a regular listener of the podcast, actually. So uh, but nuttynovelties.com. Yeah, and it's is, also uh, on Amazon. So you can find nutty novelties, uh great nut butters, yeah. especially the pumpkin nut butters. We cannot Super recommend good. it enough. So but in in all seriousness, though, like we had a great first season and uh, unbelievable. So excited uh, that first season. Um, Doug, I'm curious, what are one or two interviews that we did that that really stuck out to you that you found to be meaningful or have even caused uh, some healthy change or support in your own life? Mm. Yeah, I mean... I think as a good parent, you're supposed to say you love all your kids. Um, but, and I, th- I think each one was so specific and so different, but, um, again, as I think back, uh, you know, now having a, a set of focus goals moving into the fall, uh, I just feel yeah. really encouraged by that. And just to have that opportunity to, yeah, just, I mean, I think to knowing Dave for as many years as I have and having an opportunity to to reconnect with him and just to hear his heart. I, this know, was Dave Sharps. Dave Sharps, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've just really appreciated that one. And I think too, like uh, even just the conversation uh, that we had a chance to be privileged with AJ Swoboda, I feel like he named so many yeah. things. Oh man. Um, that so many of us have have experienced without knowing how to name that. And so that was that was eye-opening, encouraging, exciting. Um, the level of honesty. Yeah. So that was just really powerful for me. And I think what what that really did for me was it just continued to help me to say, like, where am I paying attention to the stuff happening under the surface of my soul? Um, and also just the importance of play. Uh, and I, I know uh, you you were talking to me about a guy that you met who actually has a play, like play has been such an important thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Like we're going to get him on here in this next season. Dave Bindewald is his name out in Pittsburgh, uh, founding director of the Center for Play and Exploration. Dude, I, I already cannot wait for that interview. That just sounds like the coolest place I in know, the world. It is. <laughs> it is so cool. And he's he, he loves baseball. And we just talked on and on and on. And uh, yeah, he's just a great guy. So we've got a great lineup of a lot of, of wonderful 
uh, and diverse presenters coming up here in season two. So I am thrilled yeah, uh, to too. be entering into this second season with you. So tell us a little bit about what we're going to be listening to on this episode. Oh my gosh. So uh, you and I both read a book uh, by the the guy who's on today. His name is Steve Cuss, and he wrote a book called Managing Leadership Anxieties. Um, your, or their, yours and theirs. Um, and it has been one of those books that has just really challenged me in the way that I understand what's happening under the surface when things are going on in rooms with people. Um, and it's just helped me become a better leader. But what I'm most excited about is we get a chance to just hang out and hear his heart and his passion and just hear his story. And so I'm looking forward to that. And then is we're going to get a chance also to hear about his book. And we're just so excited. And just the work that he does in terms of helping leaders manage anxiety, um, both personal and universal. And so I'm really grateful for just this opportunity we have to, to, to learn, um, and even just to, to hear great stories. And so, yeah, I'm looking forward to this, these next two sessions with Steve. It should be really, really good. Our next guest is Steve Cuss. Since 2005, Steve has served as the lead pastor of Discovery Christian Church in Broomfield, Colorado, which is a suburb of Denver, uh, which is an innovative and entrepreneurial church that's grown from 150 to more than 1,000 in weekly attendance. And it's intentionally welcoming spiritual seekers and skeptics and is passionate about partnerships that break the local and global poverty cycle. He's also served at a megachurch in Las Vegas on a ranch for struggling teens as a youth minister in the Appalachian region. He also has spent time uh, as a clinical chaplain in hospitals for years. But he's originally from Perth, Western Australia. And you'll hear in these interviews his wonderful accent, but he's passionate. He's also an author of Managing Leadership Anxiety and also a podcast by that same name, which Doug and I both highly recommend. So we want to introduce you to our new friend, Steve Cuss. Well, Steve, thanks for your willingness to be on the Monday Morning Pastor podcast with us here today. Hey, you're welcome. And I know you have a mutual friend in Mandy Smith. We've had Mandy here on the podcast before, and so it's good to have another Australian on the podcast. I'm sure you get that a lot, so forgive me for always mentioning that. I have to be careful with Mandy not to overplay that Australian card. So, oh, really? She gets uh, tired of the, the Aussie? Yeah, so I think, I think Mandy would agree with this, too. I think everyone needs at least one Aussie in their life. <laughs> well, we're grateful to have more than one and having you as well. So. Um, yeah. So Steve, tell us a little bit about your story. I know you're there in Denver. Tell us uh, how you go from Australia to Denver. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. It's, it's a treat to be with you guys. Um, yeah. The short story is I grew up in Perth, Western Australia. So Mandy, tragically, is an East Coast <laughs> Australian. Um, but the, the, real, the real rugged Aussies were on the West Coast. So I grew up in Perth, very isolated city. None of my family were believers, but my oldest sister, just, there's just two of us, um, she came to Christ, became a Christian as a teenager, and then she led me to Christ uh, as a teenager. So I was, I was maybe 14. Uh, Mom and dad, who are really great people, wouldn't let me get baptized for a year because I think at the time, I thought we were being persecuted, you know, martyrs for the cause. Mm. I, now that I'm a parent, I think they were just trying to be good parents and they <laughs> thought we joined a cult, you know, <laughs> because we became Jesus freaks. We became fanatics. So fast forward to when I was 17, I graduated high school. I went to university to be a vet, which is all I'd ever wanted to be mm. and um, hated it. I, I was really disillusioned and I, I took a study break and the week everyone's supposed to be studying for exams. I'm on the beach just praying and really felt a strong sense of call to be a pastor. And uh, it was scary because because of my secular heritage, I wasn't sure how my parents and my extended family would react. But I think literally actually miraculously they gave their blessing, which was amazing. And for a whole host of reasons, I came to the United States to study theology. Um, I, was, I was basically biblically illiterate. I like literally, I took a Bible entrance exam when I started my college in Tennessee and I couldn't put Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the correct order. I just mm. was a true illiterate, but all zeal. And, uh, yeah, so I uh, I did my undergrad degree, 
And then um, I kind of stumbled into hospital chaplaincy when I was 24. And that's a lot of what my work is on now is the lessons I learned from that. And then I went and did my seminary degree. Um, and then I was in Las Vegas as a crisis interventionist at a mega church, Central Whoa. Christian Church. Oh, it's a fascinating place. Um, and then I moved from there to Denver to be a lead pastor. So I've been here almost 14 years. And it was um, one of the many uh, really, really great late 1990s, early 2000s church plants is the, the church I arrived at, Discovery Christian Church. And it was the small church meeting in a, you know, uh, a linoleum uh, cafeteria in an elementary school, but amazing people. And uh, I, the, the founding pastor had left. I came about six months later. So I'm not a church planter. I've never planted a church, but I, I did help it turn around. And um, yeah, now we're in a building. We were the first church to move into our own building in like 20 something years in our city. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So our city for a variety of reasons is a tough culture for church plants. And a lot of people say that, you know, it's kind of a badge of honor for church planters to find the hardest place. But the front range of Colorado, Denver to Boulder, mm-hmm. is um, the, the failure rate is extremely high. And you're talking really good people, really good churches that are closing. You know, you, you look at some of the churches that are closed and the people who led them and who are part of them and you think, oh, you know, if, if they can't make it, like the reason we made it isn't because we're smart. You know, there's, there's other factors. So, mm. so, yeah, we moved into our building. We've exploded in growth. So the whole Monday morning pastor thing, I totally relate to like the pressures of growth. Mm. Um, growth is wonderful. Like we, we grew about four fold in about four years. We went from wow. about 250 to about a thousand wow. in four years. And um, it was exhilarating. And in a lot of ways, we're still all both paying the price and trying to figure it out. Yeah. Wow. Post-traumatic growth disorder, as they often call it. So, I've never heard of that before. That's yeah, actually, yeah, yeah you that, grow at such a rate. It's yeah, can be damaging to the system. Wow. So, wow. so and, and to the soul, I think. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, mentioning the soul, it's like what, what's the state of your soul today, Steve? You know, what are the things that you've really learned along the way that have damaged the soul and encouraged the soul too? Oh man, what a great question. Um. You know, I, I know we'll get to kind of my area, my, my wheelhouse, because that, that whole approach, what I wrote about and what I learned in chaplaincy is absolutely has been foundational uh, to me. But because in my case, I'm a, I'm a Enneagram 3, 4 wing. Uh, I have the need to be exceptional, you know, when I preach the, the best compliment and the most idolatrous compliment for me would be, um, what is this new teaching? You know, like, like <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and I'm a type A aggressive, high D, high I, you know, I, I'm the, I'm the guy that until I was a hospital chaplain could walk into any room and figure it out and sell something. Mm. So before, after I dropped out of university, before I went to college, I worked for three and a half years as a salesman and I was extremely successful. So then to become a hospital chaplain and walk into a room where someone's died, and none of those skills and tricks, you can't use any of them. And, and, and your attempt to use any of them does tremendous damage, you know? Uh, so we can get into that later, but, but just that whole relearning how to be a pastoral presence in the midst of pain, I think it was partly my wiring and partly my immaturity that I thought you could, you know, pray your way through pain or, or apply a scripture, but the ability to sit with somebody in pain and be okay. Um, that has helped my soul tremendously. And then church leadership, it's so weird. Like, like chaplaincy was, you know, something like 300 deaths in a year. Like there were, there were many days where I would attend to two or three people or sometimes five or six people in a day, either who died or were dying. Uh, that was pretty intense. And then crisis intervention in Vegas was no picnic. I can't imagine that being like, you know, <laughs> easy work. I, I loved it. Uh, I really <laughs> enjoyed it. Um, but, but my hardest job ever is lead pastor of a suburban church for mm. sure, like far and away my most difficult job. And I, I think so for my soul, um, I think when I, when my role gets too broad, and I have to be too good at too many things. I think that my soul really pays. 
And because I'm a jack of all trades, I'm not really very good at anything, but I, I can get by with a lot of things. Um, I think I don't naturally know my own limits. And I think it's equal parts ego and faith, you know? Uh, and so I, I can find myself over committing or taking on too much. And then because we have grown so much, it feels like I'm saying no, like five times more than I used to say no, but I still am not saying no enough. Um, that's not being good for my soul. The other thing I, I think it really can be toxic on our soul is um, not criticism, but accumulated criticism. And so I think when I go through seasons where I'm getting hit from a few different sides, it can almost take me out. Mm. Wow. So of all the jobs you've had, you said the most difficult is what you're doing now in a suburban church context the last 14 years. What do you know now you wish you knew or someone had told you when you started 14 years ago? Oh yeah. That's always a fun question. I, I wish, cause what I tell people, I wish someone had told me just, just set your stopwatch for five to seven years and don't, and be patient and don't be in a rush. And, you know, when I came to this church, I already had 10 to 12 years of full-time Christian vocational ministry under my belt, including, as you know, like these high trauma situations, um, didn't, didn't matter. Like, like the pressure of, cause I, I still do all of that work and also preach and lead and manage and budget. And, uh, so I think if someone had just told me, it, it's kind of like when you've had, when you have more than two children and you have to shift the way you parent, it feels the same when you're a lead pastor. I just don't have the luxury of being a, a specialist anymore. And so I wish someone had told me just relax. It's going to take five to seven years. You're going to think you're dying. And you, you might die. Like it's not, there's no guarantee you might actually die. Um, but you'll, you know, you'll, you, you, your shoulders will broaden, your heart will enlarge and you'll, your capacity will grow. Uh, and I also think the best thing I did was, is I was pretty vulnerable with our congregation from day one. So I, I have some terrible stories. Like we, you know, we do these membership luncheons where new people want to come and get to know us. And in, in the first year I had a new guy say, Hey, I don't think you should tell us in this new member class that you're not sure if you can be a lead pastor or not. Because <laughs> that's confusing to us. Like, we like you. We like your preaching. And because I was so open about, hey, this is hard. And, you know, it's humbling to learn how to preach every week in front of the people I'm leading. But I, I, think, to, I think what I was smart about is I didn't, I, I didn't then need to pretend from day one. Mm. I never needed to come up in front of my congregation and say, Oh, I actually know more than I really know. Um, I think that was freeing. Mm. It sounds like something Mark Sayers uh, says where he says, Christian leadership is learning to fail in public. And yeah. it sounds like in many ways, that's what you're, what you're portraying to, to your congregation, which I mean, we just, we talk about vulnerability often here. Yes. It's modeled by a lot of our guests. And so it's good to see it's modeled by you, but not everyone can handle that vulnerability. Right. And some have even admitted, Hey, I like that. I, I look, I know you're a sinner, you're human, but I kind of like to just keep you on a pedestal. So if you could just tone down your mistakes, that would help. Right. And people, you know, pastors don't always know what to do with stuff like that because we forget that we're humans first, but so you talked about dying and we joked, we laughed about that a little bit, but when was the last time you actually wanted to quit from ministry? <laughs> the last time I wanted to quit from ministry, it's hard to answer the question because on the one hand, I would simply say, oh, about six weeks ago, probably. Yeah. And it was Sunday, Monday. There is something about Sunday afternoon, Monday recovery. I, I really think you guys are onto something. Mm. I think, I think you're offering a real gift by just naming that that 24 hour period is a recovery period. So I'd say about six or eight weeks ago. Um, but in the context of quitting, like I probably dream of quitting more than 10 times a year. I, I'm trying to quantify it, but then when it gets to actually, you know, like would I actually quit? Um, probably a handful of times. It's more like a handful. And it's because I feel both, the privilege of the call and trapped. I think when I get tired, I move into self-pity. I kind of need someone to pity me. It's pretty pathetic, really. Um, and so, like, I think I really resonate with Jeremiah. Like, when I'm really tired, I'm like, you know, 
curse the mother who gave me birth and curse the guy who said that was good news. Right? That's Jeremiah, right? Like he, he, he actually curses his poor mom. And then he curses the guy that ran out of the delivery room and announced it. Um, and, and, and Jeremiah also like accuses God. He's like, you seduced me. You know, it's really a strong in the Hebrew. It's a really strong language. Like you got me into this. Um, I feel almost bipolar with my calling. Like, like, what's hard for me is there's moments where it's like, this is literally the best in the world. Like this is as good as it gets. My, my father-in-law is at our church and he's a retired pastor. He's an amazing guy. He just came to pick my daughter up for a thing so we could do this podcast. And he, he said to me, Hey, there's a lady who wants to get baptized. She has an ankle bracelet and she's on parole and we, we have to figure out how to baptize her. I'm like, this is the best job in the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How amazing do I get to be part of that? And then at the same time, I, there's times where it just feels like, I, I don't know how I can do another day. Yeah. Um, so I, I, it has helped me to realize that I don't seem to have many middle moments. They all seem to be these extreme. And somehow knowing that that's the, the roller coaster helps me to um, take it less seriously when I want to quit. So there's, it's a, I'm, you, you guys will figure out, I'm always, I overcomplicate everything. Um, so, so there's a, there's a portion of wanting to quit where I'm saying, am I still the right person to lead this church at this size? What if I'm actually a small church guy and I'm hindering this church because we're now a big church and that doesn't feel as reactionary. That feels more like, Oh, I wonder if God is actually calling another person uh, and so I went through that phase probably a few months ago and really came out of it. And I got some coaching from some friends and really came out of it saying, no, no, I'm, I'm called here. There's, there's a lot of work. There's still a lot of vision to be realized. I think if I were to leave, this church would not realize some of that vision. But at the same time, I have to leave before that vision is really realized. The next person has to get to come and put their mark on it. Uh, but then we had a five-year period where we had four young dads die in our church in five years. Oh my. And all of them were my friends, but three of them were my very dear friends. Mm. And we were a church of about 200. We were small. So our volunteer worship leader, the chairman of my elders, and one of our best friends in my small group, all within. So the chairman of my elders died. And then six weeks later, one of our best friends in our small group um, sat with us and said, Hey, I've got leukemia. And so to, to bury my, to, to help them die, which I never had to do as a chaplain. I never had to help a friend die, but because of my experience, they called on me more than they might've called on another pastor. So like I'm, I'm spoon feeding the chairman of my elders. He had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm. And he went from this phenomenal fly fishing, rock climbing, mountain biking to incapacitated in a year. It was awful. Mm. and to go from spoon feeding him do his funeral and then the next day get up on a Sunday and preach when I had nothing you know I'm I'm so hurting and then six weeks later for my friend John to say I'm dying and then him to ask me privately to talk to him about some fears and things and then to bury him and preach and that all happened in a few years I thought I didn't think I'd survive that and at the same time, we were still a portable church. We weren't, we'd had this land, but we weren't able to move and build on it. Everything felt like we were doomed. So at my lowest then, uh, and I've been public about this, I thought, oh man, I've shown up and cursed this church. Like at my worst, I thought I need to go because I've kind of brought doom upon this church. It was really mm. pathological. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's one of the things that, that, um, we ask and we, we sit with a lot just as pastors is what are those lies that we're tempted to believe? And I, I think you're, I wonder how many other pastors listening have that same feeling of like, have, have I doomed that? Have I cursed this just with my presence? Um, but yeah, I, I, my gosh, I feel like you just took us through some pretty amazing, um, amazingly vulnerable and raw spaces. But I, I did want to ask like, Talk to us about that 24-hour period. Like, what does restoration and resurrection look like for you in that journey into Monday or that Monday morning? Like, how do you stay, how do you stay healthy? Yeah. I I have a really sophisticated set of health tools and I put a lot of time into them. And I, I write about it in my book called A Life-Giving List. 
I think the problem is, so I'd be happy to share a few, but I think the general problem is most leaders know what gives them life, yet they haven't felt, they, they feel guilty. So fly fishing gives me life, uh, a date with my wife or intimacy with my wife, um, playing an acoustic guitar, laughing and playing cards with my family. Or there's, I have about 60 or 70 things on my list and it's everything from playing guitar for 10 minutes to being in Assisi, Italy, which I've only ever done once in my life. For our <laughs> listeners, I'm not annually, you know, in Italy. <laughs> but uh, doing a pilgrimage to Assisi was life-giving, so it's on my list. So I have, I have cultivated over time because my problem is I constantly uh, collate being God's employee with being God's child. And so I, I've forged this list of the things that God has given me that are only because I'm his child, not because I'm a good employee. And then I work the list. So Sunday to Monday um, is often doing some of these things, like intentionally calendaring time. And then we have a Thursday night service at our church because we have a lot of people in the mountains on the weekend. And so that the, the unexpected blessing of Thursday night is I've already preached the sermon once and so much for a preacher, at least of our identity and our emotional well-being, is unfortunately wrapped up in how well we think the sermon did. And so the gift of Thursday night is even if it's bad, I can relax because I know I can improve it for Sunday. So since we launched Thursday night, my Sunday and Monday recovery has been much better. Mm. Uh, I I don't come off from Sunday as exhausted. Mm -hmm. And then I do have a practice. Like I'm a highly sensitive person. I feel deeply, I come across as this super confident, like, but I'm actually quite a deep feeler. And so when people share their burdens with me, it's, it's work for me not to carry them. And so I do have a practice on Sunday where I'll sit on the stage after everyone's left and I'll just talk to God about every person that has come up to me that morning. Wow. And just ask God the question, okay, is this mine to carry? Is it yours? Is it theirs? Am I trying to carry the burden or am I walking alongside them? My tendency is I, I'm not good at handing off. So I want to like help someone and then walk with them for the rest of their stupid life, you know, like, and suddenly I'm letting people down. So I, I have cultivated a, a very intentional practice of prayer every Sunday. And then I come home and I'm free. Um, having said that, I still go through that to prayer cycle some randomly on Mondays I'll wake up with that cloud but boy has it helped me just to learn that it's human you know not to Mm. trust it not to indulge it not to deny it I don't like work my way out I just please interrupt me if I'm rambling but I feel like there's two ways to handle this kind of thing I think you can either try to put it in a lockbox which is what my sitting on the stage practice is okay, these people have come to me. They are genuine people with burdens, but I listened well and I prayed for them. And if there was a next step, I helped them with it. Okay, God, now it's yours and theirs to carry and I'm available. That's kind of a lockbox. And then I walk out the door and it stays in the church metaphorically. I think sometimes you can't do that. When I was a chaplain, I couldn't do that. Like, like there's still some stories I've never told anybody, even my wife I've never told of, and there's still images in my head and they're very graphic and they're, involve, you know, a body being mutilated or burned or something. When you're exposed to that level of trauma, you can't just lockbox it. So I, I found what's helpful there is I, I treat it more like a, um, a storm. Okay. Here comes the tornado or oh, now I'm in it. It's going to do some damage to me, but I'm going to survive and it's going to leave. And, and so like a Monday, a Sunday, Monday, I found it helpful to say, Oh, here, here comes the Sunday, Monday depression. Mm. Here it comes. Oh, I'm in it now, but it's, it's going, it's on its way. You know, it's not going to stay. This isn't forever. That's been helpful as well. When you can't lock it up, you still have power over it by just recognizing I'm more resilient than I believe in this moment. Mm. Yeah. Mm. that practice i think you said you're a three with a four wing so it sounds like that pick carrying it you know take it in on yourself feeling it hard i love that practice of sitting on the stage and just releasing that 
That is such a beautiful, practical, ridiculously practical way that we as pastors can actually enter into that. It's I really wanna... sweet that we've got a, a guy that runs our AV named Corbin, just a great, great fellow. And before him, we had a guy named Thomas. I'll just give him a shout out because he just left uh, mm-hmm. our staff to go be a therapist. Uh, go, so, but they would, they would be mixing the podcast in the booth, watching me on stage and Hey, are you okay? And, I'm out, and I had to share with him. Here's what I'm doing. And, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Well, uh, I wonder if you can tell us, uh, our listeners can't see it obviously, but as we're, uh, on video conference right now, behind you is a sign. Uh, tell us about the sign, what it says and why that's there in your office. Yeah. And my office is actually, uh, our, our dining room. Oh, your dining room. Okay. Well, I can see portions of it, I, I think, but uh, tell us why that's there and, and, and why that particular verse sort of strikes you. Yeah. Modern podcasting. Yeah. The, the verse is the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. I, I, I think, um, yeah, that is a life-giving, um, that's a life-giving verse for me. When I was a chaplain, I'd go into my supervisor's office sometimes daily. He has a sign. The Lord respects me when I work, but he loves me when I sing. Mm-hmm. And obviously theologically it's rubbish, but I just think it's wonderful. You know, um, I think leaders, I, I think we get so confused between what is ours to carry and what is God's to carry and what's the clear division of labor. And I'm always, uh, I, and we're all wired differently, but I tend to try to die on every hill. Uh, and if there hasn't been a hill to die on, I'll almost build one so I can go die on it. There really is a, a sick martyrdom Messiah complex that's always at play with me. And I know it's not everybody. And so that verse for me is, okay, my job is to, by faith, trust that God is at work. Um, I'm, I'm also struck by um, Elijah when he, I think one of the things when you go into a, a, a ministry depression where you've had a ministry high and then a ministry low, which I think is the Monday morning syndrome. I think one of the lies that that depression tries to tell you is you're isolated and you're alone and no one understands. And that's Elijah. And I think it's first Kings 18. Mm-hmm. And for God to come to Elijah and say, dude, which is a very loose translation of the Hebrew. Um, <laughs> you know, he says, I've got 7,000 just like you, you know, like relax. It's not all on your shoulders. And obviously my work is the anxiety and the nature of chronic anxiety and how it wreaks havoc in leaders. But I think anxiety and depression tell you the lie. No one else, there's no one else who can do it, but you. And so I think when people are in need, you can tend to believe that you're the only one God is using to help them. And sometimes I think a leader actually shortchanges what God has for that person by because of our own anxiety, we, we rush in and try to relieve their anxiety. And that was one of the hardest lessons I learned as a chaplain. I, I'll never forget, we, we had a teenage young boy dying of cancer on one of my shifts. We would often do these 28-hour marathon shifts at the hospital. And I sat with that family for six hours and we never said a word. There was, there's nothing to say when someone's dying and everyone has come to terms with it which doesn't mean they're okay with it or that they're not sad. They've just, they've, they trust it. A, a verse of scripture can feel so obnoxious or cause you've, you've shrunk this holy moment down to one little verse to make yourself feel better. Mm-hmm. That was the lesson I had to learn as a chaplain and to be able to sit in holy ground for six hours and be fully present to people in pain. That was a huge lesson for me. That was a phenomenal lesson for me. Wow. Um, so that verse to me conjures up a lot of emotion for me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, you talked a little bit about support and even some of your own relationships of people within the church dying. I mean, your friends. Um, what does it look like today in terms of your constellation of support? And that could be people, but it could also be rhythms. But, you know, as you come out of Sunday, you've released it you know, on the stage, you go home Sunday afternoon, you know, that 24 hours, but even during a given week or month, and you talk about a small group as well. Describe to us your constellation of support. Yeah. So oh, you I don't that. feel alone. That's a great question. Um, there's so many levels to it. My wife and children, I almost feel Catholic about my wife and children in that in the Catholic church, marriage is a sacrament. You know, it's a conduit of God's grace. That's how I feel about Lisa and the kids. They are so life-giving to me. They, I've had so much healing in my own life. 
because of my relationship with my wife. And so that that's number one. And a lot of people talk about their family that way, but it just it, like, yeah, it just is. Um, I, I have a group of friends who are mostly in ministry that are on my short list to call. And, uh, I'm not, I'm, I don't have an ego about calling them. And, and so that couple of months ago, when I was really starting to wrestle, I reached out to two of my good friends and I just poured my heart out and, and I received their counsel. And then in a very tangible way, my church is incredible. Like I, I think it helped that I lead so vulnerably, like there's not much pretense at our church, but I also, it's absolutely true that I stepped into a healthy environment. Like the pastor before me and the people that he attracted are healthy, uh, life-giving people. And so on the one hand, it's tricky because I always have at least two hats with every person at our church. You know, even my friends at church, I'm still the pastor. And sometimes I have many hats. I'm also the, the volunteer liaison and all these things. But um, in December, um, I got a phone call on a Sunday morning. It was like eight in the morning. And a friend I hadn't talked to a long time, he said, did you know, and he named a guy, he said, did you know he committed suicide? And I didn't know. Um, and it, it rocked me so much that between that call and the hour later when I had to preach, I hadn't had enough time to even be able to recognize I'm in no shape to preach. I should not be trying to preach. So I get out on the stage and first time in my life this has happened. This is just last December. I start to preach and then I just completely lose it, like uncontrollable sobbing. <sighs> uh, it, it was awful. And uh, at the end of that, I, and so I just had to stop and say, here's what happened. Here's what's just happened. And um, <laughs> I think I'm still dealing with it. Mm. Uh, and I think partly why this particular one is so hard is because I think up until this friend uh, killed himself, I, I believe the lie that all suicide is preventable in some way, but he had done all the right work. He was very open about it. He had made agreements with several people. And so it hit me hard. Um, but what was amazing is to be able to explain to the church what had happened. And then the, I would just say the majority of the congregation, you know, I have various levels of relationship with people in my congregation, some that were journeyed for the 14 years I've been here, some who are newer, but the overwhelming majority of our congregation to be cared for without being pitied uh, was incredible. And, and for them to care for me in a way, you know, you know how sometimes people are so anxious when you're hurting that you end up having to care for them. It didn't happen. Like it never happened in that moment. And I think that's the sign of a healthy system, you know, where people just gave me space. They, a lot of hugs told me they were sorry and then left me alone. Um, didn't then like, I, I've seen it before with some people, that's their opportunity to get in with the pastor, you know, that kind of weird behavior. I'm going to be the one that cares for the pastor. I was really, made me really proud of our church. Mm. And I think that's a gift. I, and I'm very aware that I, I have a rare gift at our church and I, I don't take it for granted. So mm. That'd be some, some answers. Yeah. 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 And thanks for your vulnerability on yeah. that too. Thanks for sharing your tears with us. Um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, just wrapping up this conversation, Steve, first of all, thank you so much. I mean, I just feel like, you know, we're just getting to know you and I've gotten to know you through your writing, but it's just so good to hear your heart. Um, but my, my last question is just real simple. Like how would you want to encourage pastors listening to this podcast today? Yeah. I think I do want to say to pastors that I do, I do think objectively it is one of the toughest jobs in the world. I, I also think we lose sight of what an incredible privilege it really is and how much freedom we really have. Like it's true. I work very hard and I have to be careful about how much I work because ministry is never done. At the same time, I have the freedom to go to my kids' games um, my wife is at work today so I can work from home today. Cause so my kids, and I, I do, I look at some other people, particularly people in my church and the pressure they're under. I also think I, I would highly encourage a pastor, the healthier you can be emotionally and systemically. And I know we'll get into family systems theory, the healthier you can infect your church with health. Um, 
like I, I really believe I came into a largely healthy culture, but because of my systems training and because of my own interest and you know, I can now receive care from the church. Uh, so I don't, I'm not being very succinct. I think the pressure is real. I guess I'm saying that the pressure is real and it's hard, but it's worth the fight. So our church doesn't attract very many non-pretentious Christians. They, they just don't fit. Um, and, and people have left because of my vulnerability. They get quite uncomfortable with it. They want more certainty out of their preacher because I share a lot of doubt as well from the pulpit. Um, and so I, I think it's worth the vulnerability risk, but I'm also aware of how naive I am about how many pastors are in toxic situations. They've not been trained in the tools and they're getting the crap beaten out of them. And, and that is why I wrote the book is to try to give them a language and a path to, to get through. Yeah, that's great. Well, one last question I have for you, and it's one that uh, you and I have connected on before uh, via Twitter, and it's one that you ask every time on your podcast of your guests, but uh, through through our uh, the great theologian Dana Carvey. Um, but you know what? Where have you? And I'm, I'm even probably going to botch it, but when do you feel most fully loved? Is that uh, how you ask it on your podcast? Yeah, when do you feel most fully loved? Yeah, what yeah. a question, Dana so, Carvey. What a yeah, question. G- give us the context behind that. He and Jerry Seinfeld. <laughs> give us the context, and then if you wouldn't mind, I'd love for you to answer that at the end at the end of this episode. I, I love stand up comedians. I was watching comedians in cars getting coffee, and Dana Carvey's on the show, and he's very talented. But I wouldn't put him as one of my favorites. So I watched it anyway. And he's definitely doing the Dana Carvey goofy thing with Jerry. Yeah, I think they're at the, what, the Polo Club in Beverly Hills or something. He's doing the, like, not going to do it, kind of like right in the middle right. of it, right? right. Is it that scene? He's, <laughs> he's doing his George Bush impression. Yeah. <laughs> and what I remember is I think they were in a round booth at a 50s yeah. diner. And yeah. he's got his arm okay. around the booth. <laughs> and he, he just stops his impression dead cold. He says, hey, Jerry, when do you feel most fully loved? And then... Jerry just like stunned, can't answer him. And so Dana jumps in with the answer. And Dana says, for me, it's anytime I hear the word dad. Mm. I was like, wow. And then uh, he goes right back to that goofy thing. And, and Jerry, Jerry has enough. He says, I've, I've never been asked that question. What an amazing question. And so, yes, I now add it. I, when, when guests come on my show, you know, I tease about it. I, I try to make it sound like this terrible thing, but I, I inflict upon them my gauntlet of anxiety questions. <laughs> <laughs> and they have to brace themselves. And of course, it's all just life-giving stuff. But I asked them that question. I, I've loved the answers I've gotten. For me... Um, there are several answers. My, my family, my wife, my kid, like my wife's laughter. Um, and, and to be quite frank with you guys, just waking up in the morning when she's asleep in bed or when she's waking up, um, my, my wife has one of these, um, delightful, um, quirks that when she wakes up, she's usually already trying to figure something very specific out. (laughs) And I, I need a coffee and a shower to really be with it. But she wants to talk about like, Hey, what are we going to do about that garage door or something like that? <laughs> and I, I love it. I just love it. It's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, but also uh, for me, uh, reading a good theological book, um, catching a brown trout, mm. um, oddly enough, one of them um, chanting Gregorian chant with the nuns at the local monastery. I don't know why, mm. but I feel the love of God. Um, if for me, it's almost always something that I can't twist into ministry. That's what I've learned about it. Um, and I'm feeling more and more loved because I'm, I'm, I'm more and more heightened to all the pleasures that God's given me. Um, yeah, that'd be some of the answers. So, all right. I think I have to ask one more question too. So also as an East coast fly fisherman, I've only dreamt about coming out West and fishing, so yeah, what are the streams you fish? What's oh, working? Man. What's not working? What are the conditions like right now? Oh, it's it's a sin not to fly fish in Colorado. It's just uh, bad stewardship. So <laughs> thanks, I appreciate that guilt and shame. Just no, I'm just kidding. Where have you been to Colorado and not fly fish? Because that is probably a sin. I have not been 
to Colorado. Oh, you're fine then. Fish. You'll still be yeah. fine. Yeah, okay. you'll probably okay. still make it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank yeah. God. I know. So I'm the guy that lived in Colorado yeah. for five years and never went fly fishing. I'm the sinner here in this oh, conversation. Good. Okay. Well, at least our shame can go a direction. <laughs> that's a big problem. Yeah, that's a big problem. Um, I'm I'm very slow to learn. I, I take a long time to get good at something. So it took me years to be good at fly mm. fishing. And actually, it's funny we mentioned shame. I had a powerful encounter with God knee deep in a stream dealing with my own shame at my inability to catch a stupid trout, you know, mm -hmm. and I, and my self-talk like, Oh, that's how dumb you are. You can't even <laughs> be smarter than a tiny brain fish. You know, it was really a powerful <laughs> moment. And since then I, I'm now pretty regular, man, the, uh, right now in Colorado, the runoff is still pretty high. So the, the streams are high. Mm. I was fishing last Friday, actually near Camp Elam. I had to go get my son from camp. So I left at six in the morning or some early time so I could fish all day. Cause one of the world's greatest fishing streams is, is 30 minutes from Camp Elam. Wow. And it's the uh, South Platte in Deckers. There's a rope that goes across the South Platte. And if you fish across the rope, you're fishing where the president's fish. It's a private no. club. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's, and you know, there's cliffs around and it's incredible. And, uh, if you're a, if you're a fly fisherman, then dry fly fishing is the pinnacle. Yes. Being able to get a fish to rise to a dry fly. And I was in the water and the, the, the stream, the, the flow was really high and I made the foolish decision to wade the river and almost got swept away. It was a little <laughs> touch and go, but I managed to wade to the other side to this soft seam and I caught as many trout as I could stand on a, on a single parachute Adams. No and way. You're talking 18 inch fat brown trout. Oh and, goodness. And it, it to me, and I do want to capture this for our listeners. You know, preachers, we always make the mistake of telling a story and then explaining how you should feel about it. Right. <laughs> um, I've never done that before. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, but to me, I think the magic of this life-giving list is when I catch that trout, I literally do say, thank you, God. Yeah that I'm in this water. Thank you for the spots on this trout. Like you made this, like I'm, this sounds so funny to some people. My, my wife has learned to, to gently tease me about it. I am moved by seeing wildlife. I'm that guy that even when we're in Estes Park, Colorado, where elk are like rats, I will stop <laughs> and point out the elk. Uh, and it's just the way I am. And so for me, seeing a trout, handling a trout is literal sacrament. Um, it's mm -hmm. weird. Mm -hmm. So. So yeah, and I'm, I'm going again uh, Friday morning. I'll be up at Partial, Colorado, and I'll I'll be leaving at five or six in the morning, and we'll see what the day brings. And my I've gotten good enough to where I just am now able to say, God, if I catch a fish or not today, yeah. look at this creation I'm in, and what an incredible opportunity I get to spend a full day. And thank you for my family that freed me up to go. You know, so. Mm. Uh, well, we decided to change the name of the podcast to Monday Morning Fisherman. You so know what? I listeners, was, you I was aren't confused. So. I think that's a great idea, JR. I think that's really good. Uh, Steve and I are starting a new podcast called Fishing Pastors. Uh, it'll be coming out very soon. Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair we can enough. have an East Coast, West Coast thing going on, and you could talk about the big fatty browns. Yeah. <laughs> I could talk about the brook trout out here. They're very tiny, but absolutely stunning. When you brook get back- trout. A beautiful. <laughs> when you get back into the laurels of Pennsylvania and you're up in the mountains, man, some of these streams are just, they're so beautiful. But it's anyways, magical. It is magical. Now that we've talked about the important stuff, um, <laughs> thanks again for joining us, Steve. We really appreciate uh, your heart and your time. And we're really looking forward to uh, furthering the conversation about leadership anxiety. And so, yeah, thank you. You bet. interview with Steve. Um, oh man. I, you know, I feel like, uh, just meeting him, uh, I feel like he's one of those people that I feel like I've known for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to have mutual friends too, with like Mandy Smith and sort of knowing his story from Australia and yeah. then Vegas and Denver. Yeah. You, you were kind of geeking out a little bit there about fishing. Oh man. I, was, I mean, I have to admit I was pretty lost. <laughs> <laughs> when he talked about fishing with parachute Adam and Adams, I just thought, wow, they're, you know, the East and West coast can someday become friends. <laughs> uh, it was even cool to hear just the fact that West coast Australians and East coast Australians are, yeah. you know, there's a bit of some bad blood there. Which, like East side, West yeah. side. <laughs> um, but the, you know, the other thing that I found really interesting is 
I think some of the guests, I mean, I think this is the pastor we've had on with the largest church. Yes. And he's talked about exponential growth. And, you know, we talked about post-traumatic growth disorder. Um, I think there are some pastors probably listening going, I would love that problem. Right. You know? And so uh, others are saying, man, I used to have a huge church and I've grown the church now down to like 50 people, you know? So we want to be sensitive to all of our listeners, but I found it really interesting. I think we oftentimes say, well, the grass is always greener. I wish I had a bigger church, but to hear from Steve firsthand, like it's wonderful and he loves his church and it sounds very healthy, but there's also stress and anxiety and heartache and pain that exists when your church explodes too. Well, I mean, to say that I worked in a hospital as a chaplain with people who were dying, and then I worked as a interve- you know, in intervention in Las Vegas, and now in a suburban church, the last fourteen years has been the most hardest in a suburban church. I mean, that mm-hmm. there's it's so true. I think part of that is growth. Part of that is also realizing just how hard so many of our listeners just to hear someone else recognize how difficult it is to serve in a local suburban church. It is, yeah, it has its own set of challenges and difficulties. And I, I felt almost when I heard him say that it, it almost felt like, Whoa, someone else gets, gets that, you know, mm-hmm. there, there are other places we recognize there's, there's challenges in every place that we all serve, but there is something very unique about being in that context. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, this was so good that Doug and I wanted to let you all know this is actually just part one. And uh, we're going to have part two with Steve, where he's actually going to talk about his book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, and talk about family systems theory. We'll get into that later. But the first one, we really wanted you all just to hear who Steve was and the great guy that he is. And so we just want to leave you with one question and one resource, and we're going to give you more questions and resources the next time uh, and next week when we have him on for part two. So the question, this first one was the Dana Dana Carvey question that we want to encourage you to think through and to talk with, whether it's your elder team, whether it's a spouse, a close friend, uh, someone at your church, a friend, whatever it may be. But it's that question, when do you feel most fully loved? When do you feel most fully loved? When he asked that on his podcast, I remember just being jolted uh, with my earbuds in of like, wow, what a question. And so we want to encourage you to ask that question of yourself uh, and with others. When do you feel most fully loved? And then here's the resource. Just I want you to go into iTunes or Stitcher or uh, Android, wherever you get your your podcast uh, list from. And I want you to look up uh, Steve Cuss's uh, podcast, Managing Leadership Anxiety, and just listen to another episode uh, or two don't do it in place of ours, right, Doug? Correct. But in addition yes. to. Add, add that. In that's addition good. to. That's Very right. Good. But it's a fantastic, fantastic podcast. And uh, I don't listen to many podcasts, but that's on my very short list. So we want to encourage you with that, that question, that resource, and to be reminded that you're loved. You are not defined by what you do or how well you do it, but by the fact that you are loved, you are a child of God. And so make sure you operate under the correct proposition. You're not doing ministry for God or to God. You get to enter into life with God. So live a with God life this week. We'll see you next week.